In our gospel reading, would you please stand with me? Luke 18, we stand again for the reading of the gospel to remember that all Scripture points to the life of Christ. He is the answer. And so Luke 18, reading from verse 9 to verse 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray again. God, our Father, we come to your word as those who find great spoil and great treasure. And we say to you, O Lord, that we love your word far above thousands of pieces of gold or silver. And so we pray, Lord, that you'd open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak for your servants listen. And now, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our only redeemer. Amen. Well, our passage today from Luke's gospel is a well-known one, the parable of the, the Pharisee and the tax collectors, and it's a, it's a much treasured one. It's full of comfort this parable, and it's full of challenges. It soothes us, but it also sets us on edge. And it does the latter, setting us on edge when we realize who it is as we read this parable that we identify ourselves with. And we catch ourselves saying, I'm so glad I'm not like the Pharisee. When I think of this parable, I think of Flannery O'Connor. O'Connor was one of the great writers of the American South. She was a, a devout Roman Catholic and a very, very able uh, author. And O'Connor wrote a number of short stories and some novels that were uh, chilling and grim and full of the grotesque, but they're also charged with the notion of grace. And few people could paint the plight of the self-righteous sinner like Flannery O'Connor. One of her stories, one of my favorites, is called Revelation. And in this story, in the deep, deep south, Mrs. Turpin is waiting in a doctor's office with her husband who's been kicked in the leg by a cow. <laughs> Probably a turkey gives a, a good kick as well, but he's being kicked in the leg by a cow. And as she waits in this waiting room with her husband, she talks incessantly. And she talks so loudly that everyone can hear her. And the substance of her talk is all about Jesus. Jesus is in, is in every, other, every other sentence. How grateful she is to Jesus for all the things that he's given to her. How grateful to Jesus she is that her pigs are the cleanest pigs in the county. Our pigs have no mud on them. How grateful she is for her good disposition and her buoyant humor. And how grateful she is for just being herself. It's, if it's one thing I am, Mrs. Turpin said with feeling, it's grateful. 
When I think of all that I could have been outside of myself and all the things that I got, a little of everything and a good disposition beside, I feel like shouting, thank you, Jesus. Thank you for everything, for making everything the way that it is. It could have been different. And at the thought of all this gratitude, Mrs. Turpin floods with gratitude and a terrible pang of joy runs through her. Oh, thank you, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus she cries aloud in the doctor's waiting room. And it's at that point, O'Connor writes, that a book strikes her directly over her left eye. Mary Grace, a young student sitting across the room, hurled a textbook at Mrs. Turpin in the middle of the woman's hymn of praise, and she grabs Mrs. Turpin by the neck and says in a resonant voice, go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. And it's this violent scene for Mrs. Turpin that turns out to be a moment of grace as she senses that the voice that comes to her from far beyond in this girl is piercing her soul, a revelation from God. And Mrs. Turpin begins the painful process of pondering how, in fact, she is indeed a warthog from hell. And there are few things so needful in the church than for God's people to come to terms with how sinful they really are. Because the preciousness of our Savior can only really appear to us in proportion to how we view the extent of our sin. A small sinner only requires a small Savior. But a great sinner, an impossibly great sinner, requires an impossibly great Savior. <laughs> the cure for evangelical churchmen, I am convinced, writes J.C. Ryle in his matchless book, Holiness. And if you haven't yet read his book, Holiness, by J.C. Ryle, the Anglican churchman, you really need to read this book. It is an all-important all book to read. The cure for evangelical churchmen and women is to be found in a clearer apprehension of the nature and sinfulness of sin. We must begin low, he says, if we would build high. We must realize more fully the amazing sinfulness of sin. Or listen to Alexander White. Alexander White, another very important uh, churchman, he was a 19th century Scottish Presbyterian, often ignored. In fact, I was just reading the other day, I was going back to Lewis's, uh, another good book, Lewis's Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. And as I read through that, I, thought, I noticed that Lewis had started reading Alexander White at the end of his life. And he writes to Malcolm, I've just started reading Alexander White, uh, Alexander White a very important author to read. Alexander Wright, in his book uh, on the Puritan uh, Thomas Shepard, he writes this. He says, What a doleful fountain of selfish thoughts is the mind of every man, and of foolish thoughts, and of brutish thoughts, and sometimes of absolutely diabolical thoughts. Who among us could endure for a single day that all of his secret thoughts should be known to any of his fellow men? Now the one point in all this world for a truly wise man to find out is how his so wounded and so bruised soul must be bound up and healed. My soul, my so wounded, and my so bruised soul. And if you think Alexander White is being a wee bit overly dramatic, 
and a wee bit morose. Just listen this morning to the prophet Jeremiah. The heart is deceitful above all things, and it's desperately wicked. Who can know it? Deceitful above all things, that's you and me. Desperately wicked, that's you and me. This is what Paul's trying to come to terms with in Romans 7. Paul is exasperated. I can't believe how bad I am, he says. I am acutely aware that evil is present with me. I am painfully conscious that I do evil things. I keep breaking God's law. Paul, quite simply here, is being ashamed. Ashamed of who he is. A warthog from hell. Oh, wretched man that I am. And we live in an age that doesn't like shame. Doesn't like the word. Shame is widely dismissed as a negative thing. We should strive, we're told, to be free from shame. You know, we have all these memes about various ty types of shaming, even dog shaming and whatnot. Shame is a bad thing. Shame is vilified. And granted, shame can be abused. Shame can be twisted and used for bad ends. But shame is a biblical concept. There are many things in this world, according to God, that are shameful. Things that Paul says we shouldn't even talk about. We shouldn't even mention them. And there are many things of which we should be ashamed if we participate in them. And that state of being ashamed, being ashamed of things that we've done, being ashamed of things that we've thought, being ashamed of things that we've felt, that state the Bible describes as a state of health in a state of wellness. Psalm 83, 16, fill their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O God. See, the sense of shame comes before seeking God's face. We can never seriously seek God. This is how Calvin begins his magnum opus. This is how he begins the institutes. You can never seriously begin to seek God until you are what? until you are thoroughly displeased with yourself, until we've been gripped with this sense of shame. And I think Ryle is right. If there's anything missing in the church today, it's this healthy sense of shame. What does Job say? I abhor myself. I am a malicious man, wrote Calvin. I am a wretched man, confesses Paul. Our gospel today, our gospel passage, is very simply about shame. One man feels it, the other doesn't. One man is overwhelmed with how bad he is, the other has no sense of his sin at all. And as it speaks about shame, it also speaks about prayer, the kind of prayer that God accepts. Last week, Josh spoke very ably on the, the, the context of the temple and the house of prayer. And it's no coincidence today that our lectionary now directs us to this passage. What kind of prayer should go on in the house that should be about prayer? And our passage tells us today that the prayers that should be offered in God's house are those that are marked with repentance. God takes special delight in those prayers that pour from the lips of those who are simply overwhelmed by their weakness, their brokenness, and their sin, who say to themselves, I can't find anything to fix the magnitude of this problem. 
We have a tree in our backyard, and I've shared a little bit of that tree with you this morning. It stands to the, the south of our house at the backyard. It's a gorgeous shade tree. It provides us with shade. It provides us with privacy between us and our neighbors, but it comes with a cost. It's an ornamental crab, as I stated, and every year, late summer, it starts to drop its little prizes. And it starts out seemingly manageable. And we can gather the litter uh, little by little, but as this, the season moves on, the tree, the tree turns his affections against us, and the relentless dropping of fruit finds our family in complete despair. We can spend all afternoon, hours upon hours, gathering fruit from the ground, only to discover next morning, overnight, that the tree has covered the ground all over again. Thousands of these things, thousands of them all over the ground, splattered, mushy, rotting fruit. <laughs> And we go out there in the morning, and the air is permeated with a stench of rot and decay. It's overwhelming. It's too much. Just unmitigated carnage everywhere. And the wonderful thing about our passage today is that this, this state of soul, to which God takes special pleasure and delight in drawing near, is the state of being completely overwhelmed by the mess in our lives. It's that state to which God loves to draw near. And our colleague says it so beautifully today, O oh God who declares your almighty power most chiefly in showing mercy. This is where God loves to shine. This is where God loves to be in the midst of your mess and in the midst of a people who feel utterly undone. This is why I was so puzzled for so many years attending all these different churches and not being able to comprehend why there was no confession of sin in the church. Why was it not happening when the Bible states so very clearly this morning that this is the prayer that God accepts from the lips of a people who know to be, in Paul's words from Romans 7, of the flesh, sold under sin, helpless, powerless, overwhelmed, warthogs from hell. Grace is for the humble, we read this morning. God's power and mercy and salvation are for those who know and who confess their sin and wickedness, who know their sickness, who feel it deeply, and who want to be cured. It's interesting, isn't it, when you look at the Pharisee this morning, he doesn't really pray. The Pharisee does not pray. He, sends, he says all kinds of things about himself but he's not asking God for anything. He feels no need for the divine mercy, and so he doesn't cry out. The tax collector, on the other hand, focuses entirely on what he needs from God. He is so aware of his sin that he's striking his chest. He's striking his moral center. He's demonstrating his failure to do God's will, and he knows that the only answer is in God's help and in God's power. And so his prayer is very simply, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It reminds me of a story from Tolstoy. Uh, Tolstoy wrote a few, uh, several short stories. In, in this particular story, there's a learned theologian, and he's been traveling by boat, and he arrives on an island where he comes across three monks who are not surprisingly in the middle of their prayers. 
But the prayers of these monks are very simple. He listens to them saying to God, we are three, you are three, have mercy upon us. And so the learned theologian in all of his wisdom takes it upon himself to educate these monks in the way of prayer, to teach them the proper way to to, to pray, the much longer prayer that touches all the proper points of theological sophistication. And at the end of his instruction, the monks offer, offer him their humble gratitude. And the theologian goes off to his boat feeling quite good about himself, and he, he sails away. But after some time of sailing down the sea, he hears the voices of the monks calling out to him. And looking behind, he sees them running across the water, beckoning him, saying, Sir, dear sir, we have already forgotten your teaching. Please teach us to pray again. And the theologian, now feeling his own shame and shaking his head, says to them, Never mind. Forget everything that I've taught you. These monks had already understood where God's power is to be found in the simple awareness of weakness and in the plea for mercy. Before I close today, I want to mention the danger of the Pharisaical prayer. It's not only the danger lies in the Pharisee being disconnected from the blessing and the power of God, but the Pharisee is disconnected from the blessing of people. The Pharisee, in not understanding his own sin, develops a loathing for all types of sinners. I thank you that I'm not like other people. The Pharisee stands alone, disconnected from the community of sinners because he has no room in his heart for pity or commiseration with their weakness. And if we're not careful this morning, each of us can do the very same. We can find people's sin so distasteful, and we distinguish ourselves from them, and we don't want to be near them or with them. And this is always the dangerous sign of the pharisaical heart when the speck in our brother's or our sister's eye is so much bigger to us than the beam in our own. And when we're truly ashamed, when we are truly repentant with the tax collector, then we can be part, truly, of the community of sinners, which is the only community that there is, which is the only fellowship that there is. Brothers and sisters, here this morning, the great news of the gospel, with Jesus Christ, the righteous, nailed to a cross for sinners. The great news of the gospel is that God is most powerfully displaying who he really is when he shows mercy to sinful people. Alexander White says the whole of the Christian religion stands on these two pillars, namely the greatness of our fall and the greatness of our redemption. And so let's confess our sins so that we can discover the riches of God's kindness and learn more and more that everything that he does for his people, these warthogs from hell, is full of grace and full of kindness and full of mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.